Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. So jump into the Word together into the book of Revelation, which... I cannot believe if you came last week and found out we're talking about Revelation, you actually came back. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. But as we talked about, it's not Revelation is not some sort of coded uh, fortune teller book. It's not something that we have to decipher together. It's, it's something that even in the midst of these strange symbols and strange signs, it's something that is speaking to the world that we see today, the world that we are living in. Michael Gorman used this quote last week, but he says that Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. It's a book written to encourage and strengthen both first century Christians and 21st century Christians who are dealing with suffering, pain, struggle, in their case, persecution. And then and now, the message of this book, the message of this mysterious last book of the Bible is simply that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And there's a hope in that, that no matter what time or culture or tradition we are coming from, there is a hope in this that is incredible. Today, we're talking about Revelation 5, as we just heard earlier, this vision of heaven that John has as he's looking through his eyes. We get this, this cosmic picture uh, that's presented to us of both our, our present reality and also our future as well. So, so here's what I want to do today. I want to unpack this passage together, um, but first I want to pray and pray that as we jump into scriptures like this that are sometimes confusing and sometimes controversial, that We'll just hear the word that the Lord is speaking to us today. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that, that we, don't, <laughs> we don't master it, that it is irreducibly mysterious because, God, you are mysterious, that what we can know about you, we do, but, Lord, we also come knowing that we see in part. But, God, I, I pray in, in your spirit today that you would help us to see, you would illuminate your word, you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would convict us, and form us to be more like Jesus today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 5, look on the screen with me. Just jump in here. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
So there's a scroll here. It's in the hand of God. It says there's writing on both sides. Back then, that was really weird to have a scroll with writing on both sides. And what's unusual is it has these seven seals. Now, what is that? In the ancient world, these seals, you can see this picture here on the screen. They would seal scrolls, seal documents, and it, it not only symbolized the importance of the contents, but the, the insignia, which was usually like a king or an emperor, what it would do is saying, I'm going to tell you who's actually able to open this. Now, if you have the king symbol, only the king or who the king says can open this up. And so you have a scroll here that not only has a seal of this importance, it says it has seven seals, meaning this is a document of incredible importance, of incredible authority. This scroll is not just any scroll. It's of the highest authority possible. What's on that scroll? Well, some think it's the scriptures. Some say it's the book of the life that it talks about uh, in Revelation. But from what we see coming forward in this book, what it really kind of talks, I think, speaks to is that the scroll is the unfolding plan of God. It's the, the future that awaits us. And so the final judgment, the future that we're moving into together. And, and so we're asking here, who is worthy to open the scroll? Literally, who is worthy to be in charge of the unfolding of history? Who is worthy, who has the authority to open up and in store, give us what history awaits us? Put more simply, who holds the future? That's the question this is asking. Who holds the future? Who has the power to hold the future that awaits us? And it says here, no one in heaven, no one on earth. And so John weeps. He cries. For the same reason that many people weep today, and that's because it feels like sometimes that the future's out of our hands, doesn't it? It feels sometimes like the future that's ahead of us is so mysterious, and there's just nothing we could do to see what's ahead of us. So we become disillusioned, we become cynical, we become weary, and sometimes we cry because it's hard to know sometimes who holds the future. Amen? It's hard to know. Verse 5 continues, though. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So these are Old Testament titles for the Messiah here. We see the, the root of David, the tribe of Judah. And best of all, he's a lion. Now, if you are a persecuted community in what is now modern Turkey back then uh, in the Roman Empire, you're hoping that your Messiah, the one who is coming for you, is, is going to come up and take over. He's going to be the one who comes in power and stands up for you against all the evil that is around us in the world. Do you hope this is a strong God, a God who comes that it's good news against the empires, the powers, and the principalities of this world. The powers of evil in Revelation, they're represented by sometimes a dragon. So if you've got a dragon, y'all, I want something strong to go up against the dragon. I want something that's going to come up against this and have a chance. It also talks about beasts, lots of beasts and dragon, weird stuff. We can say that, okay? This stuff is weird. 
But if you have dragons and beasts and stuff, you want something strong, right? You want somebody to come in your corner who will fight for you. But then John looks out over heaven. He's expecting this powerful lion of Judah to arise in this throne in majesty and power and glory, and yet that's not what he sees. It says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. I expected a lion, but we get a lamb. And not just a lamb, a lamb, it says, that looks like he was slain. You get a dragon and we get a lamb? A lamb? Now remember, there's symbolism in this. Remember what John the Baptist says when Jesus comes on the, on the scene. Remember, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover, the spotless lamb was sacrificed, and by his blood he saved us, saved the people of God from death. The lion of Judah is... The Lamb of God. The beautiful paradox here we see in Revelation of who our God is. He is the Lion who is the Lamb that was slain. Jesus, who was pouring out his life on the cross, is paradoxically the, the, the King of glory. The one in power is the Lamb who was slain, triumphing not by the violence of empire in Rome, but triumphing by being the Lamb who laid down his life for us. And notice it's a lamb who was slain, but he, he's alive. Meaning he has met death. He knows death. He knows suffering. But even in knowing death, even in experiencing the suffering, he is alive. He has overcome it. This is a lamb that's here, and he has been slain, but he is a living lamb. It continues. It says, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which are the, uh, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now, you're probably thinking, now it's really getting weird. <laughs> and you are right. Many signs and symbols. And it's easy, when you're studying Revelation, when you're looking at this, it's easy to come to stuff like this and be like, yeah, I'm just going to turn the page until I get to something I can actually understand. Or to become so like tinfoil hat crazy trying to figure out every single little thing that you miss what's actually happening. There's these symbols, these biblical symbols here mean something. First, the number seven is the number for perfection. So it says they have seven eyes. Eyes represent in this wisdom. And, and then seven horns as well, which horns represent power. Meaning, as we read this, we can either get way caught up in weird tinfoil hat late night religious TV stuff, or we can see what it's actually saying. The Lamb of God has perfect wisdom and perfect power. The Lamb of God in the midst of empire is the one who has wisdom that the Greeks cannot touch. 
He is the one who has power that Caesar cannot touch. And this lamb is eternal. That's what John wants you to know. More than who is this or what is that or how is this representing this, John wants you to know that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is all-powerful, that he is eternal. That's the message he is proclaiming. And rightfully so, in the midst of this, as they begin to see the Lamb that was slain, they begin singing and worshiping and praying. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. The Lamb has conquered, and he has formed for himself a people. That's us, people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. But that's not enough. If that wasn't enough, then the, the curtains open up and the angel choir comes up. And things get bigger. It says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They were encircling the throne, the living creature and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And if that wasn't enough, if you have all the millions upon millions of angels singing in, it says the whole of creation jumps in here. This is like let it be at the end of the concert. You know what I'm talking about? It's that woo, amazing. It says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures, meaning these weird, weird-looking angel dudes, start worshiping too, saying, Amen, amen, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. This is every angel. This is every mountain. This is every molecule, every star and every starfish, all worshiping and declaring the Lord God Almighty who reigns, this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus alone holds the power of unfolding our history. The Lamb of God alone holds this power to see our future, to hold our future in his hands. He alone holds the judgment of God. He alone is worthy of our songs, our praise. It's why we sing as we gather every week, not just because that's something that we should do and that's a something we practice. We sing because God is worthy of our song. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. And that worthiness does not Wayne, that worthiness does not change when life is not going well. In fact, the time I need to declare his worthiness more than anything is when things are not going well. I need to remember that I have the lamb who holds my future, even when things are hard. It also means that Caesar does not hold my future. It means that the president doesn't hold my future. The prime minister doesn't hold my future. My politicians, my party, my politics do not hold my future. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The lamb alone is worthy. And every single generation of Christian has learned that the power in this is in declaring when everyone around us 
believes that they hold our future, we know that even at the hardest in our suffering, the Lamb of God holds our lives. But what does this mean for now? That's, that's good, amen? That's, that's good stuff. The word is powerful there. But what's that mean for, like, you and I? Like, where are we actually at? I mean, what's this mean for everyday life? It's one thing to understand this passage, and it's another thing to, how, to talk about how we live from what we understand, right? This is when we're studying the scriptures. We don't just want to understand. We want to come away with the right answers, go home, and then be able to check off the box. Of, I understand this now. How do we live from the understanding that God gives us in the scriptures? What does this truth, this lamb who was slain, what does it mean tomorrow at work? What's it mean in the school pickup line? What's it mean in the dark night of our soul? What does it mean when things are hard in actual life and not just in a room like this? Early Christians, as they heard this for the first time, they knew they needed more than theological insight. When you are suffering, you need more than the right answers in the Bible, don't you? When you are in that waiting room at 3 o'clock in the morning and you don't know what's going on, you don't just need good Bible answers. You need hope. You need to know how to live from what you believe. Then and now, we need the Lamb of God in the here and now, the living witness and hope that we have. These followers of Jesus in this moment, they probably felt powerless, powerless. They felt like the powers and the principalities of our world, they held the authority in our history because they had held the authority to come and to take them right out of their homes and kill them right on the spot. Rome ruled the world at that point, all the way from the beginning of England all the way to East Asia. I mean, this was a huge, huge empire. And, and, and reigning is this Caesar. In fact, Caesar Augustus, the one who was on the throne when Jesus was born, he would come to be called the Son of God. There are, there are like carvings that you can find that, that happen, and actually in Turkey, that say that he is the Son of God. And it was announcing his birth as good news, as literally gospel. It said that he's called the Son of God because he brought the Pax Romana, meaning the peace of Rome. They worshipped Caesar. They began worshipping Caesar because he was said to take Rome, which they thought had kind of lost all of its luster and made it wonderful and great once again. And so he must be the Son of God. But this peace, it was achieved by violence. It was a peace that happened because they would go into these countries and just absolutely crush people, push them down, tax them to death. Empires filled with armies everywhere to make sure that they could intimidate anyone just like they wanted to. Around the time that Revelation was written, around, somewhere around there, there was this emperor named Nero who was not only throwing Christians to lions, he was impaling them on stakes and lighting them on fire to be street lamps to go along the roads in Rome. This is the beastly world that our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ lived in. It was literally beastly. So in Revelation 6, it starts talking about beasts and Again, we can say this, this is getting weird. It's getting weird. And you know why 
they have these symbols. Because if you're caught with these letters by Rome, guess what? If you're just seeing this, hey, Rome is terrible. We should probably like overthrow them. Everybody's getting killed. So these symbols are a way, just like Negro spirituals back in the day, to say what they want to say without saying it. If you know what I'm saying. Declaring what is true. We see things start talking about the mark of the beast. The number 666. There's a lot of strange stuff that starts happening here. It's, it goes without saying, but the mark of the beast, um, it, it talks about how it, it, you can't participate in the economy. In the 1970s, it was said that credit cards were the mark of the beast because they had little chips, right? Every generation has a new thing that's the mark of the beast. What was recently? Vaccines were the mark of the beast. Everything is the mark of the beast. And then who is the beast? Is it this prime minister or president or powerful person? There's even this, this article I saw from last year that said, Mark of the Beast alert, Amazon planning to link your credit card to your hand. Okay. This is fear-mongering. It's taking these things and trying to scare people in the midst of this. Now, interestingly, Nero, if you take his name with, with, with Hebrew numbers, kind of add it all up together, guess what it adds up to? Six, six, six. Michael Gorman points out that most scholars think that the first two beasts that they're talking about in Rome, these imperial, are, are imperial cults, they're worshiping the emperor. The, the easy thing for Christians in that time to do was just to compromise and say, yeah, I like Jesus, but, but I, I'm going to bow to Caesar. He says that the mark of the beast might be an imperial slogan, seal, or image. Although we should not be looking for a specific individual who is the prophesied Antichrist, which, by the way, Antichrist is never mentioned in Revelation is somehow associated with this number 666, we should always be ready to identify and disassociate from political powers that claim divine or quasi-divine status or even simply divine blessing and demand total or even simply unquestioning allegiance. Meaning, what is the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is when we give our allegiance to politics over the Lamb of God. When we give our allegiance to Caesar and say that power is in the government and not in the king of kings, the Lamb of God, when we think that we have to legislate our way into heaven, that is when we are truly bearing the mark of the beast. And what's way more dangerous than whether or not you have a credit card in your hand is whether you are more aligned with politics in this world than you are with the kingdom of God. That's the real danger. That's the real danger that awaits us. Aligning with power that more resembles the beast than the lamb. The danger is placing our politics as an altar of worship, of devotion, in a way that undermines our allegiance to Jesus. The real danger is when we choose the peace of Rome over the peace of God. 
We choose coercion. We choose violence instead of the cross-shaped sacrificial love. Every generation of Christian, every culture and tradition of Christian has faced this question. Will I compromise? Will I compromise and use the means of the beast in the name of Jesus? Will I use violence and coercion and corrupt power to try to do things for Jesus, or will I trust Jesus is that power? Will I trust it? We see this in the Crusades. We see this in just four centuries after this with Constantine and his army. The army would hold up their sword. They would be baptized, their sword, their whole body and their horse and everything. They would send them through the water, but they would hold their sword out of the water because God couldn't get the sword because that's what they killed with. We see this in the defense by Christians of chattel slavery. We see it in Jim Crow. We see it in the fact that there were literally lynchings in church parking lots and nothing was questioned. We see it today in the violence of voices on our TV screens calling us to belittle and hate our enemies. It's the voice of the beast. It's not the voice of the lamb. This is the way of the beast and not the way of Jesus. And listen, my friends, what's dangerous about this is that we can follow the way of the beast and put a Jesus bumper sticker on it and, it, and call it Christian. We can do everything we can to raise up a sword with the cross logo on it. And we're still doing things that look nothing like the Lamb of God who was slain. The, the, the followers of Jesus should be known as the followers of the Lamb, which means our life should look tangibly different from the world around us. Our, our, our lives as followers of the Lamb should, should stand out from those who follow the way of the beast. The, the Lamb of God, my friends, it's not just the means of our salvation. He is, he is our model. We are those who live and, and operate in the sacrificial cross-shaped love of Jesus where we are. We refuse to co-opt, to coerce power and violence around us. We are the followers of the Lamb and not the beast. We remember that history does not unfold because of the power of the sword. It unfolds because of the power of the cross. This is the paradox of the faith that we have. The, the power that we see in the scriptures is the power in weakness. It's a power of a king who reigns not from a throne but from a cross. And the lamb who was slain who's on the throne, we see this because the lamb who was slain we see crucified before us. The foolishness of this Roman world, their execution of Jesus was meant to be humiliating. The crucifixion of Jesus was meant to say to, to him and his followers, we are in charge of the unfolding of history. And we see in church history that those who chose in the midst of empire to follow the way of the Lamb literally shifted the foundations of the world. Roddy Stark, he's a church historian. He estimates that, that the church from the beginning grew at about 40%, 40% every decade. Meaning that if there was around a few thousand Christians uh, right after Pentecost, within 300 years, 
there were 32 million Christians. Half of the Roman Empire in 300 years were Christian, not because they co-opted to Rome, but because they followed the Lamb. People noticed they followed the Lamb. There are literally letters that are written from Roman officials that talk about how loving Christians were. When the, the plagues were coming and people were running out of the city, Christians were running into the city to love and to sacrifice their lives. And ironically, Christians survived at a greater rate, even running into the cities and caring for those in need. Tertullian, an early, and early Christian father, he writes about how he walks in town and hears Roman citizens talking of Christians and saying, see how they love one another. Look how they love one another. Church father, another one named Justin Martyr, no relation. He writes that we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with, with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Justin was born about five years after the probable date of Revelation into the church that was growing in the power of the Lamb of God. The question for us today, just as it is for Christians in every time and place, is where is my allegiance? Do I give my life to the way of the beast or the way of the Lamb? And so we join the songs of creation, the songs of the angels every week, and we sing and celebrate and worship, and we're doing something beyond just saying we believe in God and we want to worship him. We're doing, we're making a very rebellious declaration every single Sunday when we come here. We're saying worthy is the lamb. That just doesn't mean that God is awesome and worthy. It means that he is worthy, and the powers that we will face all week long cannot touch him. We always have the lamb who is slain. So Jesus, in that power, I pray for resilience. Lord, the temptation to co-opt to the powers and the principalities of this world, to lose ourself in enemy hate, to lose ourself in condemnation, to lose ourself in the dividing walls that are being built around us all the time. May we look to the throne of God and see the Lamb who was slain. And Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church, as this people that you purchased by your blood of every tribe and nation and tongue and people. I pray, Lord Jesus, you would make us like the Lamb you would call us out of the ways and the powers that we have known and that you would give us true power, spirit power, and the cross-shaped love of Jesus, our King. 
As we take these elements today, Lord, we remember that it's your blood that purchased our pardon. It is your blood that drew us together as a family. And we do so with joy, singing worthy you are, God. You are worthy of all glory and honor and power and wisdom and praise. Pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to celebrate communion together. We have elements on the column right here. We have some up front, too, if you'd like to grab some. Uh, you don't have to participate with us, but we would love for you to. Um, we do this every week, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, not only uniting us to Christ, but also uniting us to one another as